Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We're joined in uh, this portion of our program by Sayu Bojwani. Uh, Sayu is the founder and president of New American Leaders, uh, which is a national organization that we'll find out about. Uh, she had served as New York City's first commissioner of immigrant affairs, and she's a resident of uh, New York. She's also talking with us as the author of People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates Knocking at Democracy's Door. There's an interesting title for a book. First of all, it's nice to have you join us on our program. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. A lot of thoughts come through my head um, in preparation for this discussion today. But the very first one, I think, is a natural, and you probably are getting this a lot. That title, I often ask authors this. Was that the original title for this book? No, that's a great question, actually. Um, It was not the original title. And I really struggled with a title that would invite everyone in to the conversation, and that wasn't focused just on immigrants, which uh, the stories that I tell are of people who are first, second, third generation immigrants, but the story of our democracy that comes out in their stories uh, really affects everyone, regardless of ethnicity. And so I just, um, I sat with the title for a long time, and then one day sort of popped into my head. Mm-hmm. The, at least the people like us pa- pa- part. And then the, um, you know, the subtitle, I think, was a way to, to capture the political moment that we're in, in terms of a number of new candidates running for office. When we take a look at the 115th Congress, which has been said to be the most diverse in the history of this country, what do we see as the racial and gender makeup? Well, it's 81% white and male. The other 19% include, you know, Asian Americans, Latinos, African Americans, and women. Um, I think what we're going to see this year in 2018 is although there will be, and people are very excited about people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ilhan Omar in Minnesota, Rashida Tlaib in Michigan, Lauren Underwood, Ayanna Presley, um, African Americans running in Chicago and Boston, the, in, the percentage change uh, is not going to be that significant. Uh, and their voices amidst 400, 400 plus others uh, will be strong, but you know the question about whether things can change significantly in terms of policy when you have such a small percentage change is is a big one. And 
a lot of people are already talking about the 2020 census. When that comes around, what do you think is going to have changed in terms of basically a snapshot of this country demographically? Well, I think what happens in, in every census is that there is a recognition nationally of some of what we see locally. And I'll tell you that what I have noticed in the in the work that, that I do through the organization I run, New American Leaders, is an increasing number of American Muslim and black immigrant apply, black immigrants applying to our program over the last couple of years. So, you know, really anecdotally, I would say based on the few years that I've been doing work in immigrant communities, I'm, I think we're always struck by the numbers in the census reflecting what we had been seeing on the ground. And so my guess would be that you will see an increasing number of, uh, an increased number of immigrants from African countries uh, and their descendants. Um, the challenge with the census, of course, is how that data is going to get captured, right? And are we going to see the nuances within uh, those who identify as black? Um, and also the nuances within those who identify as white, because, for example, with Arab Americans, there isn't a um, you know, category that you can check. And there was under consideration a new category for Middle East and North Africans. Um, so that, to me, is going to be the biggest potential growth area. Um, and But the question is, how is it going to be captured? And, and that's a, you know, it, it unfortunately hurts communities that are not accurately uh, counted and captured. Um, and I do think that Middle East and North African communities are the ones that are going to see the most... Um, you know, are going to be most disadvantaged in the count because of the way the, the census ca- counts people. I asked you about the Congress. When we look at, you know, those lower levels of government, whether it's on a state level or even when they get down to the local governments with, you know, the town and city councils and the like, what kind of percentages of elected positions are we seeing occupied by somebody other than white men? Well, so the state state legislatures are um, 14% people of color, fewer than 2% of those uh, of the sort of 500,000 state and local offices. You know, that's everyone from county committee person, um, any elected position in, in the U.S., uh, Fewer than 2% of those are occupied by Asian Americans and Latinos. And, you know, when you look at uh, numbers for women, it's it's even lower. So among state legislators, for example, uh, about 6% of state legislators are women of color. Uh, and so, you know, you really see a huge disparity, and, and that's why the work of our um, kind of progressive infrastructure to build a pipeline is long-term. Like, we're going to see great wins, I think, this year in terms of, you know, people who would not otherwise uh, have run, people who have really energized a new group of voters, um, and I think we're seeing that all around the country. But in terms of actually changing the percentage representation, we have a long way to go. You and your work focus on Americans who immigrated to this country or whose parents did so, those folks you call new Americans. Why do you see them as being so well positioned to, you know, be, I guess, at the forefront of a fight for a just democracy? 
Well, one of the things that, um, you know, happens to all of us, right, is that we, we have folks we can relate to based on our, on our own experiences. And I, I know um, from my own experience as an immigrant that the process of, of navigating uh, American, the American citizenship process is a really tough one filled with a lot of hurdles. Um, and then millions of other people like me have to fight to get here and then to stay here. And I think that fight and determination and the fact that the processes, the democratic processes, are not always transparent or even open to us initially makes us value what is available in America and what democracy, the potential for democracy. I think we value it uh, more than people who are native-born and take it for granted. Uh, I think that you'll find that many new citizens are, are very excited at the possibility of being able to vote. Um, so I think those those things, that tenacity and determination and fight, uh, are all very strong characteristics for people who are running for office and representing their constituents. But then I think the the ability to uh, know what it feels like to be marginalized and to have to figure out how to get access or um, get acceptance, I think is also an important set of qualities that you can bring to governance uh, because you understand when you're making policy that you have to really think not just about you know, those who have easy access, but those who might not have as easy access, um, who might find the policies of our government off-putting, um, where we have to make special provisions around language and access. And so I, I think we bring all of those. And then last, the last point I'll make is that, you know, um, sure, there are immigrants who arrive here uh, with uh, a lot of economic means, but many of us try to need to figure it out, and we have had struggles, economic struggles of our own. And I think that gives us... Uh, gives us some insight into what everyday Americans experience when they're, you know, struggling to make make it and to access the opportunity that America has been so uh, famous for. Um, and so I feel like we bring a kind of unique Americanness, if you will, to both campaigning, uh, to policymaking, and to democracy more broadly. In introducing you, I mentioned the fact that you're the founder and president of New American Leaders Tell us about the organization, if you would, please. Yeah, our organization um, started in 2010, and, you know, with a view to some of the things that I'm saying is that we didn't feel that there were immigrant le- enough immigrant leaders in office representing not just our own communities, but representing, uh, you know, every American. And the idea behind New American Leaders is to help recruit, train, and prepare first and second generation Americans uh, to run for office using sort of three uh, values, frames, if you will. One of those frames is that uh, our story as immigrants is part of the American narrative. And so when we teach people how to tell their story on the on the campaign trail, we really emphasize that the immigrant experience can be shared uh, with voters of all backgrounds and can be used as a way to connect with everyone rather than something that we need to hide or um, or be ashamed of. The second is how do we invite more people into democracy by expanding the electorate? So I was talking earlier about why immigrants are uniquely qualified. I think 
that when we run for office, we are also uniquely aware of how our communities, uh, voters in our communities and potential voters in our communities, often get ignored by traditional campaigns. And so a part of our training at New American Leaders is emphasizing that our role as immigrant candidates is to expand the electorate by reaching out to new and low-efficacy voters who whose doors are not getting knocked on by traditional candidates. And then thirdly, we teach how to navigate the, uh, you know, the really the, the thing that most candidates are afraid of is uh, raising money and asking for money. And, and we talk about that as a way of, um, you know, we talk about using fundraising as a way of teaching others uh, in our con- in our community about investing in democracy and participating in democracy. So it's less about raising money for you as much as it is about bringing new stakeholders into the process and teaching them that giving a $5 donation is an investment in their community. And, uh, and so it comes to your campaign, but it's really about investing in community. So it's really about ultimately our program is about creating a more inclusive democracy in which immigrant candidates, immigrant voters, and immigrant donors are more able to participate. Um, they understand the rules of the game and are, are invited to participate in a way that they haven't been before. It is Sunday morning on the fans. Matter of fact, it's a holiday Sunday morning. Hopefully um, you are recovering from that experience with uh, Thanksgiving and all those leftovers too. We are in a discussion on our program uh, this Sunday morning with the guest who is the author of People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates Knocking at Democracy's Door. Saju Bojwani is talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. We're talking on our program with Sayu Bojwani, who is the founder and president of New American Leaders, which, as you've heard, is a national organization. And she is also the author of a book entitled People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates Knocking at Democracy's Door. And she's our guest on our program. You know, talking about this issue of money, the numbers, I think, are something like 66% of Americans surveyed think that money has too big an influence on campaigns. Realistically, how can we turn this around? And I'd like you to also talk a little bit about the clean election law, which I find interesting in the state of Arizona. Sure. So, you know, Bob, I think there is um, there are a lot of things in our country uh, that are a little bit out of step with uh, with our modern society, right? So. You know, often when we think about money, we think about corporations and the cost of campaigns and hidden figures behind uh, behind candidates. And all of those things are, are very valid and true, and I talk about some of them in my book. But I think the, the piece uh, that gets very little uh, attention is how money affects who runs and who serves in the first place. Uh, and the clean elections law that you mentioned is a program in Arizona that has um, similar, has parallels around the country in different ways. But in Arizona, what happens is you can run for a state office, so state legislature, even statewide office, secretary of state, governor, um, and you're 
mandate if you want to participate in the Clean Elections Program is to raise a small amount of money uh, from U.S. citizens and communities and, and voters who reside in your district. So um, that those numbers are always changing, but most recently it was $4,000 for someone who wanted to run for state rep. And once you've raised that $4,000, you are uh, given a certain amount of money by the state of Arizona, um, somewhere from sixteen to 45000 depending on how competitive your district is. And so once you've raised that initial 4000 your focus becomes on all the things I talked about uh, that we train for, connecting with voters, helping, understand, helping them understand the issues, helping yourself understand what issues are of concern to them, rather than spending all your time raising money. And it it takes money out of the equation, at least as it relates to who can run in the first place. Uh, and in New York City, there is a, um, ma- a public match program for the city council. If you participate in that, every donation up to $175 is matched six to one. In Seattle, there's a democracy vouchers program. So all of these things help to level the playing field about who can run. But once you get into office, uh, like in Arizona, for example, state representatives make $24,000 a year. Uh, in Georgia, it's 18000 The The idea when these salaries were set, and by the way, they haven't changed in 20, 30 years in many cases. So um, and in New York, it, it's a little bit higher. I think it's 78000 uh, But these jobs are considered, quote-unquote, part-time, and the legislature meets, you know, part of the year. But what what has happened is that we have a government system now that is not keeping up with modern society. So we no longer uh, just need a few men who um, own businesses or own land meeting in the state capitol a few days a year and deciding on policy for the rest of the country or the rest of the state. We expect that our legislators are going to be available whenever we have needs. We expect them to be constantly serving their constituents. So the job on paper is part-time. Time, but in practice is full-time. And folks are not getting paid full-time salaries, and so they're having to juggle, you know, different uh, side hustles, if you will, in order to make ends meet. And, and it, so it makes sense that the majority of legislators are people who are lawyers, who own businesses, or tend to be older and retired, uh, where, you know, a daily... Um, livable wage is perhaps less of an issue. Uh, here, and this last point I want to make is that in New York, what we've seen is that the city council got a raise a couple of years ago, and so they make a full-time salary of 145000 uh, with the requirement that they cannot take any other jobs, which used to be the case in New York City Council. And so state representatives who make about 78000 have, uh, in the tw- last election cycle, we saw several state representatives come to um, and run local for their city council seat, partly because it's a more uh, competitive salary. And so I think we have to take money out of the equation, not just in terms of campaigns, but also making it possible for everyday Americans to take on this public service role in a way that doesn't require them to compromise making a livable wage. What about term limits? Because we hear arguments all the time, both ways on term limits. Where do you fall? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's about the magic number. You know, I, I do think that having too few years in office uh, reduces the level of experience legislators and the level of seniority that you have in a state legislature. And it takes a long time to understand. I mean, you might come in, I might go in as an immigrant rights uh, advocate and know the immigrant rights issues very well, but not really understand zoning and planning very well. And by the time I learn it, you know, my term is up. And that's an argument that people make. And um, the other argument people make is that um, voters are the ones who determine term limits. But, of course, that's not always the case, right, because the name recognition of your incumbent uh, and the endorsing institutions tend to support an incumbent. So um, I argue for term limits as a way for bringing fresh blood in, for keeping incumbents on their toes so that they understand that, you know, they um, need to continue to be connected to their uh, constituents in order to not be voted out quickly. Um, And I think that the idea of public service is one that, you know, in theory, as many people as possible should be able to engage in. But it is a fraught issue, and I think ultimately it depends on what the magic number of years is. I think between 8 to 12 years is long enough for someone to build a bench of expertise, build a track record, and then pave the way for someone else. Some argue that gerrymandering basically has kept ethnic and racial communities from adequate representation. How could we correct that? Yeah, I mean, in the book, I talk about independent redistricting commissions as one way. You know, fewer than half of our states today uh, have independent commissions deciding how districts look. And we talked about the census earlier. I think the census is going to create great opportunities for um, state legislative and congressional seats to uh, to be drawn in ways that will allow for the election of communities that have never seen a representative. But that's only going to happen if there's independent commissions. Um, I also talk about single-member districts, right, which is one way of getting representation. Um, and that's, you know, very quickly I'll just say that it's a, it's a way of drawing city council and school board districts uh, uh, also to create representation from communities and um, and groups, right? So not just ethnic communities, but lower-income folks, um, people who live in a part of the city that uh, might not be able to, uh, where someone from that city might, from that part of the city might not be able to win a citywide election because they can't raise enough money or they don't have name recognition, but they can be elected um, in their district in, in the way that um, I describe in the book about Raquel Castaneda Lopez in Detroit, um, in Yakima. So the ACLU, this is the last point I want to make, is that the, the ACLU has been involved um, in some lawsuits uh, in California and Washington that have resulted in the cities going from what are called citywide or at-large elections to single-member district elections. Uh, And this connects to state ledge and city council because the reality is that if I'm a uh, working-class Indian American um, and I get elected in New York City um, in my district in Brooklyn, let's say, uh, and then a seat opens up at the state ledge or at congressional level, the fact that I already hold a city council seat positions me better for higher office, uh, and um, which is something that I might not be able to do 
if I was never elected in the first place. So I, I realize I'm putting a lot of information into that answer, but um, but I think the the point, the larger point, is how all of these things connect. How the census connects to who represents us. How do um, smaller electoral districts connect to who eventually represents us in Congress. Um, the majority of people in Congress have held local or state office before. And so if we open up opportunities at the local and state level, eventually our Congress is going to look more like America. Most interesting discussion with Sayu Bojwani, the founder, president of New American Leaders, uh, also the author of an interesting publication entitled People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates, knocking at democracy's door. Thank you very much for being so kind with your time and sharing the thoughts that you have. I know you've inspired an awful lot of thought on the part of people who are listening to our discussion today. And certainly good luck with this book and good luck with the organization and your work. Thank you so much, Bob, for having me on. Saju Bojwani talking with us on our program on The Fan this Sunday morning. Her book is entitled People Like Us, The New Wave of Candidates Knocking at Democracy's Door. Hopefully you enjoyed our discussion with uh, Sajub. Uh, she is the founder and president of New American Leaders. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, she had served as New York City's first commissioner of immigrant affairs, and she lives in the city. Now, we are going to continue in our program and uh, shift our focus into well, another interesting area. We roll until 7.30 on Sunday mornings. That's when the NFL preview happens here on The Fan. We're joined on our program. I'm Bob Solter, and an interesting discussion we're going to have because we heard an awful lot about uh, Hungerthon on uh, Hungerthon Tuesday. And a little bit, too, about the work of Why Hunger as an organization. We're going to explore some other areas in discussion, too. We have two guests who are joining us. In studio with us is Allison Cohen, who is Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger. First of all, it's nice to see you again, Allison. It's so lovely to be back. Thank you for doing this with us every year. Uh, you're welcome. And joining us uh, by phone on our program is uh, Jan Papendick. Uh, Jan is a Why Hunger board member. She's an author, a scholar, a food justice advocate. And uh, she is joining us on our program. We're going to be talking about a couple of interesting things, including a proposal by the uh, Trump administration that we'll get into talking about. Jan, it's nice to talk with you again. Thank you. I'm glad to be there by phone. Okay. Uh, a little bit of background here, first of all, on, I always like to do background on, on why hunger. Now, I know to the two of you, you probably think, doesn't everybody know what why hunger is all about? <laughs> well, maybe there are some who do not. I like to cover that as a possibility. Who wants to tackle why hunger? I can do that. Why hunger is a nonprofit organization. We were founded in 1975 by the late Harry Chapin and um, the radio DJ Bill Ayers, who um, is um, now an ambassador for why hunger. It was uh, founded on the, the fundamental belief that access to nutritious food is a human right and that hunger is a solvable problem. And um, we, Why Hunger is a grassroots support organization. We invest resources, funding, training, technical assistance um, to grassroots organizations that are working on the front lines every day on these issues in their own communities. And when we're talking about why hunger is as an organization from the standpoint of people who are listening to us. Is this a large organization? We're actually a very small organization. We have about uh, 17 employees. We work globally, so we um, 
are working in um, all around the world and um, also significantly here in the U.S. as well. And we we intentionally stay lean and mean because we are not we, we see those that are on the front lines as the real experts in this work. And um, and so what we're able to contribute is is our, our direct support to um, help them in their work on the front lines, as well as to knit them together with other organizations around the country so that we're ultimately really building a broad-based social movement of folks that are most impacted by hunger and poverty, as well as those who are uh, working to abate it in their own communities. And we really believe that it's going to take a broad-based social movement to to end what is seemingly an intractable problem, but it, is quite solvable. So it's a form of and Jan, feel free to jump in on this too. It's a form of networking, basically. Alliance building, I like to say more okay. than more than networking, because uh, um, alliances uh, commit to um, to to c- developing a shared analysis and then working together to, to to as long as it takes to to really deal with the issue at hand. I like that because I I think network has become kind of a cold word yeah. in the <laughs> sense, and I like an alliance because it has more of a softer sound to it and actually sounds like it'd be a little bit more in terms of positive especially in a discussion like this now also since you mentioned the fact that this is such a lean and mean organization i understand that you and jan just recently had traveled yes we were um just in the uk together we were both invited to be a part of a of a conference of um, scholars and activists that um, are beginning to understand and amplify the um, the situation of of um, food banking in the UK, which my understanding is they opened their first food bank in the UK in 2005, whereas we've been doing this for 50 years. And so, in some ways, Jan, I think this is how I would describe it. And and um, and you might have a different um, take, but I we were invited to really spin a cautionary tale of food banking and. Um, you know, we're, we're 50 years into this here in this country and the folks that we were meeting with and talking with in, in England um, and Scotland were saying, you know, this is um, we don't want to go the way of the U.S. We don't we don't want food banking to be institutionalized here. We want to hold our government accountable and um, and 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 tell us tell us how we don't go down that road. <laughs> I think that that captures it. Um, there has been a, a pretty dramatic rise recently in the reliance use of uh, what I would call food pantries. There's always a terminology terminology difference, and when they say food bank, they mean kind of the retail level, the the shelves in the church basement that someone turns to when they are out of food. Um, whereas when I say food bank, I mean a great big warehouse with uh, loading docks and truck bays and then warehouse management software. But they're at a, a turning point, I think, or at a at a crossroads where they're beginning to enter the phase of, okay, how do we do this better, more efficiently, um, push more food through these channels? And that's the point where they need to make a decision about whether they want this kind of food handout to be a a significant part of their supports for for low-income families and people. And in the past, the U.K. has had a a very robust welfare state infrastructure, 
and that has really been under pressure um, for the last several decades. And recently, um, they're converting to a, they had a kind of welfare reform process, and they're converting um, county by county to a new system. And people are being asked to go six weeks without any kind of, of public support as the new system is phased in, and so they are turning to food banks. So this is really um, a crucial time for them to, to say no to that six-week delay and to to uh, decide what kind of nation do they want to be. I had the chance to visit um, one of the uh, food pantries, food banks, um, uh, in the Wandsworth community in London um, before I, I came back home. I was struck by what I saw, which was you know, sh- shelves lined up in the church sanctuary of food. And um, and they explained to me, we're doing this intentionally. We, we are at a point where we probably need to have a separate space, a separate building where we can, you know, kind of warehouse all the food that we're getting. And we're seeing more and more people coming in all the time. But we're very intentionally resisting that. Um, and by having the food lined up, in the sanctuary where folks come every Sunday morning for church and, you know, other times during the week, they're visibly seeing what's happening, that as we're adding more shelves and there's more food. And so we have this real, this way of really uh, making visible what, what the issues and the problems are. But I was really struck by that, that sense of, of um, you know, yes, efficiency is important in this situation. And we have to, we really need to to make sure the public um, sees what's happening. When we look at hunger and an issue that we hear brought up an awful lot in the news these days, immigration, where do they, those ideas, intersect? Well, they, they intersect, you know, first and foremost at, at poverty. When people come from another country to try to make their lives in the United States, they often come, you know, the the getting out of their original countries and making the journey often uses up many of their resources, and so they come to, to get on the bottom of the ladder. Um, and, you know, you think about New York City and all of the, the vast quantities of work that uh, is done by immigrants in our city. And I think that's typical across the country, that immigrants largely come here to work, um, but wages are low in the sectors that they that are open for them to join, and so they join the ranks of the working poor in the United States. And when housing prices are high and transportation is expensive, it's often the family food budget that absorbs the shock. So hunger and, and immigration intersect through poverty particularly working poverty, low-wage poverty. And, of course, our food system is is really um, is reliant upon immigrant laborers, um, farm workers, as, um, you know, in order to, 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 to keep it running at the scale that it is running. And, um, and it's very often um, those are some of the most food-insecure folks in our country, those that are actually... Uh, doing the harvesting and the packing and the slaughtering of meat. Those are the folks that are, in fact, um, some of the most food insecure in our country. Right. And then washing the dishes in restaurant Rest, kitchens, I yep. mean, it goes right through the food system. Very heavy reliance on on new Americans or on immigrants. Well, I think this is a perfect 
lead into talking about something that's being referred to as the public charge rule. Jan, would you explain this? Okay. So in our immigration policy, there are several points in the process where immigration officials decide whether a person can get a visa to come to the United States, whether they can change their status to get a green card, it's to become a permanent resident, and then later in the process is the option of citizenship. But the public charge rule that about which many people are very concerned, including both Allison and myself and all of Why Hunger, is a rule that particularly affects people who are trying to get a green card. And the the law provides that when people make that application, immigration officials will determine whether they are likely to become a public charge, whether they are likely to become dependent on the the government for um, for their subsistence, for their support. And this goes way back to you know the thirteen colonies to asking ship captains to post a bond before unloading a shipload of, of uh, travelers into Boston, that those people would not become public charges. So they, it has a long history, but for many decades, the law has been quite settled in the United States that immigration officials could look at cash public assistance, whether people had received more than half their income from cash public assistance that would now be uh, temporary assistance to needy families, TANF, um, the Supplemental Security Income Program for Disabled People, or state general assistance programs. And if people had um, availed themselves of those programs for a long period of time so that more than half their income for a period was provided by that, that was a grounds for denying them the the um, ability to get a green card, or if they had been institutionalized in a long-term care facility at public expense. The Trump administration has proposed to change the basis for declaring someone likely to be a public charge to um, include the use, any use, of um, not only the cash assistance programs, but programs like the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, formerly known as food stamps, and still thought about as food stamps by many people. The SNAP program, housing assistance such as Section 8 vouchers or residents in public housing, Medicare, and pardon me, Medicaid, and one portion of Medicare, the supplemental drug assistance. So these are programs that those of us who work in public policy, as I do, regard as sort of work supports programs that make it possible for people to participate in the economy and to to grow their stake in the economy until they can earn a wage that that allows them to move beyond these supports so to to change the public charge definition to include all of these programs fundamentally changes the nature of uh, of that determination in a direction that would exclude millions of people who have been working hard to participate in the American economy. And in the interim, it has the effect of essentially scaring people off of of food stamps and out of public housing. We are already seeing a drop, a decline in um, participation in SNAP that appears to have begun when 
the news of this public charge possibility was leaked shortly after um, Trump took office. And um, when immigration enforcement itself became so much more um, intrusive and and, uh, visible. So there's a lot of fear among immigrants, and we've put them with this public charge proposal, or the Trump administration has put them in a position of trying to decide between meeting the needs of their families now, feeding their families now, or being able to... um, to move to permanent resident status later, and it's a, a not a choice we should be asking people to make. So that's the the uh, gist of the proposal. Maybe we want to clarify that, and then if you have time, I'd like to talk about how people can participate in helping helping to um, delay and hopefully defeat this proposal. Yeah, I think it's really important to underscore that it is it is not yet in effect. And it is not retroactive, and there's still time to um, to 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 comment to have, for the public to comment and to to help us, you know, uh, prevent this from from going into effect. Jan Papendick, who is a Why Hunger board member, author, scholar, food justice advocate, and Allison Cohen, who is a senior director of programs for Why Hunger, our guests on our program on the fan. This portion of it. This Sunday morning, of course, uh, Hungerthon Tuesday was this past Tuesday before uh, Thanksgiving. Um, you know, our thanks to those of you who were able to be supportive of the efforts of uh, Why Hunger. Hopefully you're hearing some good information that, again, continues this discussion. I think it's important. Um, and we'll have more of this as we continue in our program after our top of the hour update. Here on the fan. We are in a discussion on our program on the fan this Sunday morning with Allison Cohen, who is senior director of programs for Why Hunger. Jan Poppendick is Why Hunger board member, author, scholar, food justice advocate. They have both uh, joined us on our program. Allison is in studio. Jan is joining us by our by phone. At 7.30 this morning, it's the NFL preview. Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge after our 8 o'clock update. And football Sunday time with Melusis and Deal after our 9 o'clock update. You're on the fan this Sunday morning. What period of time are you working against in terms of a deadline uh, okay, to well, get comments in on this? Okay. So let me just say about the public comment process, because I've discovered talking with friends and colleagues that, um, that a lot of people are not familiar with it. Um, we're not talking about legislation here. We're talking about a rule change. In this case, a rule change proposed by the Department of Homeland Security. Mm-hmm. And when a federal government department proposes to change the operating rules of a program that has been legislated um, by Congress, they are required to post a draft comment, (laughs) um, a proposed comment, and then the public has 60 days to respond. And I'll explain in a minute how you respond. And then the federal agency is required to read each unique comment and to prepare a report on how they are taking that into account in moving to a final rule or why they are rejecting um, comments that have been made, you know, why they're not taking them uh, into account. So our 60 days began on um, October 10th and ends on December 10th. That's the 60-day public comment period. Then they have an official period, and I can't remember now whether it's 30 or 60, to prepare their response, um, and then they will post their uh, final rule. And then there's another 60 days before that can go into effect. So we have a, a window of time here. 
people may find it daunting to think about filing a public charge, but it's actually pretty easy. Um, you just say why you object to um, what's been proposed, and if you have a personal story to tell or a neighbor who would be affected, that's a good way to make it clear and human and and particularly to make it unique because sometimes when we're trying to lobby Congress, you know, we all send the same letter, but in this case it's very important that each individual comment be individually crafted and drafted. But that doesn't mean it has to be long and elaborate. It just really needs to say why you object to the proposed change. Resources for getting a little clearer on it in order to do that, there's a website called Protecting Immigrant Families that has very clear information and very clear information. It will take you step-by-step through the process of, you know, uploading a comment. The Food Research and Action Center has a um, portion of its website devoted to this, so you can go to that website and, again, get the background information you need and then an easy way to upload. I don't think Why Hunger has a separate... No, uh, we're, we're, ref- we're referring to um, the Food Research Action Center. We're also referring to um, Protecting Immigrant Families. Good. Okay. And there are, there are other options. You know, people have already connections through other immigrant-serving organizations, but those are two very helpful, kind of user-friendly ways to submit a public comment. It's also possible to go directly to the Federal Register and put a public charge in the search, and the page will come up. The rule itself is hundreds of pages long, so I encourage people to go to a website and get the gist of it. Um, from there. And when you're talking about this idea of basically resisting uh, this proposal, resisting how? Well, first off, as I say, they are required to take into account or appear to take into account public comments. And we have some examples in our history where public comments really derailed a bad proposed rule. The, The one that comes most immediately to my mind is when the Um, standards for defining what was organic food were first proposed by USDA. And the um, proposed rule, I mean, the the comment period, hundreds of thousands of people responded. And they went back to the drawing board and wrote a much better organic standard. More recently, we have news that the EPA has sort of set aside for the time being a proposed rule change, again, in the wake of many, many um, negative comments. So we have examples where we've actually persuaded them not to go forward (laughs) with something. Congress can legislate to clarify this, and if there's a big negative response to the proposed rule, that might contribute to the new Congress when it takes office in early January to consider clarifying legislation as to what the Department of Homeland Security may consider. So that will be an alternate route. But for the time being, we just want to make clear the extent of opposition. And I think it's very important that we, in our comments, make clear that this doesn't just hurt immigrants. It hurts citizens who live in households with immigrants in them, because if you get scared off of SNAP, you're probably going to disenroll for your your citizen children, as well as for um, your, yourself. And it hurts communities. 
if we get a big drop in SNAP participation in New York City, that hurts grocery store owners and uh, grocery store employees. The the figure is that for every $5 worth of SNAP benefits, a locality gets $9 worth of economic activity. So the other side of that is for every decrease in in benefits, we get a corresponding larger decrease in economic activity. It's not something we can afford here in New York. I guess on the other end is the natural question, uh, Jan, and that is, is anybody listening? Well, that's uh, in a way the the genius of the um, public comment requirement is they may not want to listen, but they have to at least appear to listen. They, they actually have, they have to, to designate respond. staff members to read all of those comments and prepare an explanation that at least looks as if they have listened. <laughs> and at least that will delay the process mm-hmm. for a while. And by the time the process is played out, we will have a new Congress in office who possibly would take action if it was clear that they weren't listening. Yeah, and I, I think that one of the things I really love about this um, this public comment period is that, you know, we often think, and I hear this all the time, well, I voted, I'll, uh, you know, it'll be another two years before I can vote again or before I can re-engage in our, in our democracy. And in fact, in fact, this is a way you can do this now. Right. And, it, and it's, you know, it's ongoing. There, there are many, many ways we can continue to engage in, in, in our democracy and, and, and holding our government accountable. And this is a really um, clear way to do that. And I'd like to say, if there are any uh, of my fellow college professors out there listening, this is a great thing to to introduce students to. to um, and obviously, we would never dictate the content of their uh, comments, and um, they may not agree with us. But as a way of participating in democracy, this is a, a great thing to get students to do, to craft a clear public comment response to a proposed rule change. And when we're talking about this kind of an approach, how can and how is social media being used to, I guess, get the message out? especially by those who were opposed to the change? Allison, you'll have to answer that because, as you know, I'm a, a, <laughs> uh, I'm a resistor when it comes, comes to, to social media. media. Yeah. Um, yes, I think that's a, it's an excellent question, and I, um, I am not 100% sure what the hashtag is that, that folks are, are using. And, um, but I think that if you um, go to FRAC's website um, and, uh, and, and also... Um, protecting immigrants. Um, I know there's uh, protecting immigrant families, that there's a, you know, hashtag take action um, that folks are using. And, um, and, uh, and, and, and we are certainly, we've certainly put it out on Why Hunger's um, social media, Facebook and website. Um, we've also linked in all of those um, uh, social media um, opportunities. We've linked to Jan's um, brilliant article that I think explains in really, really clear terms what this public charge um, proposed rule is all about. And so I would encourage folks to go to whyhunger.org and look at our blog and um, and read Jan's article. Yeah, I'm just looking on the uh, Protecting Immigrant Families website, but it's a great website and I encourage people to go to the Why Hunger website and then go to this one, and you'll find those hashtags there. You know, Bob, there's something I'd like to to clarify about sort of the two prongs of this discussion that we've had so far. 
Allison and I were sharing a little bit about our our visit to the UK and what we saw there and the desire to avoid having grocery handouts become a a major part of the the uh, public assistance landscape or the the food assistance landscape. But I think it's also important to clarify that even though in the United States we have institutionalized food banking big time, uh, food banks are um, marvels of efficiency in one one sense and um, reflect major capital investment, it's still only about 8% of the total of food assistance that, that happens in the United States. The other 92% is public assistance in the form of largely SNAP, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, school meals, the WIC program. So even though food pantries and soup kitchens, especially this time of year, get a lot of attention and, you know, pluck at our heartstrings, the real defense against hunger in the United States is the SNAP program. So we really, it's not just that we want to protect immigrant families from being put in the position of choosing between SNAP. The the proposed rule does not make them ineligible for SNAP. It just tells them that if they use a program for which they're eligible, it can be held against them at the point when they're ready to become permanent residents. So I think it's important that we that we understand that um, that the SNAP program is a, a defense of our of our common life, of our communities. Of we don't want people going hungry in this you know, overfed nation, this abundant nation. And SNAP is the key to that, SNAP and school food and the WIC program. The charitable programs do a, a great job in many cases, and people need to continue to support them because there are times when people are not eligible for public assistance and there are times when public assistance doesn't provide enough help. But we can't afford to, you know, to get into a situation where we're imagining that food pantries and food banks are going to meet the needs in this country. Yes. And I, I there's a, um, uh, an interesting um, graphic that I often like to refer to that it's like if you imagine that our food assistance in this country is is 20 bags of groceries, only one of those bags of groceries is going to come directly from the the private charity. We take a pause in our discussion with you, Allison Cohen, Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger, Jan Poppendick, Why Hunger board member, author, scholar, food justice advocate. Continuing this discussion about um, hunger and poverty, of course, our thanks to those of you who were supportive of the efforts of uh, Why Hunger during Hungerthon this past Tuesday. More with our guests as we continue this Sunday morning. On the fan. We're talking with Allison Cohen, who is Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger, and also with Jan Poppendick. Uh, Jan is a Why Hunger board member, an author, a scholar, food justice advocate, and uh, they both joined us on our program and talking um, about the work of Why Hunger, um, touch a little bit upon um, Hungerthon, which really is in effect through November into through the end of the year in December. Uh, and you can make donations in support of the efforts of Why Hunger and uh, Hungerthon. Go to hungerthon.org. Go to whyhunger, all is one word, .org. Find out more about the organization. Let's tackle this question. When you get right down to it, do people care about 
That's a difficult question. And I guess I'm asking, care about it from the standpoint of wanting it solved. Because, and we've talked about this many times, Allison, this isn't rocket science. This is a solvable issue or sets of issues. Yep, it is. And I, I think by and large, people do care. I um, and, and, and you look at sort of the proliferation of, of food banking this country and, and the, the dollars and the cans of food that flow into that. I think we're a very generous society in that way. I think the issue is, do people understand what's at the root of hunger? Because if you describe hunger as the problem, then food distribution is the answer. And the problem is not really hunger. The problem is deeper than that. It goes to economic inequities. And I'd like to weigh in because... I I had a feeling you might. (laughs) (laughs) Now about 25 years, a quarter century since I did the research for a book I wrote called Sweet Charity, question mark, emergency food and the end of entitlement. But it was really a book about what was then, you know, the the rapid growth of soup kitchens, food pantries, and food banking in the United States. And I was very moved by the amount of caring that I encountered. People who volunteer in soup kitchens and food pantries, I mean, I'm sure there are some people who, uh, who volunteer once a year because they're company has a a day sorting cans at the food bank who uh, may be more interested in making brownie points with their boss than they are in the work itself. But the people who show up week after week to do the work in soup kitchens and food pantries clearly care. And there are a lot of them. And I think many of the people who put a can in the canned goods drive or check out hunger at the supermarket checkout line or any of the you know, hundreds of ways we have devised in this society for people to make a contribution to help end hunger. I think they care. But I agree with Allison that in a way we've set up a situation that reinforces a kind of simplistic notion. One of the things that um, struck me most when I was doing the research for Sweet Charity and as I've begun to revisit some of the places that I visited a quarter century ago, I see it again, is that people get a kind of moral two-for, for, or BOGO, you know, buy one, get one free, because they get to help prevent food waste, which is a, a value that's widely shared in our culture. Even though our culture is kind of built on um, a lot of waste, we don't like to waste food. Um, most of us were, were taught as young children that it wasn't the right thing to do, and I think it's ingrained in sort of the human situation. So the whole charitable food endeavor allows people to feel good that they're preventing food waste and helping hungry people. And I think uh, people respond to that, and this says good things about us. But it is a kind of simplistic understanding because both the food waste and the hunger are rooted in deeply in dysfunctional systems. The food system generates vast quantities of waste. It produces far more than we're going to consume. And the economic system is um, fueled by mounting inequality. I mean, inequality has been getting worse and worse. So I think we, we have to learn to take the humane and human response of, yes, I'll... I'll give to help reduce food waste and to direct that food to people who are in need 
and take it further to to a better understanding of the way our economy works. I think it's a um, I think it's a both and right. It's it's um, you know we're not we're not going to end hunger tomorrow in this country, and therefore we need to we need to support those on the front lines that are that are um, distributing food and. We, at the same time, need to ensure that our public assistance programs are protected and that they are responding to people's need for food and nutrition. And we need to dig deeper and really understand what's at the root of hunger. And that means paying attention to issues of an economic, racial, and other kinds of inequities. And, you know, I, I think that the Closing the Hunger Gap group, and maybe Allison will talk about that, <laughs> Um, briefly, has really put their finger on the dilemma that faces people who work in this field about whether to put their energy into, as they call it, feeding the need, getting food out there to people who are in need, or to put their energy into shortening the lines, to addressing the the issues of low wages and um, underemployment mm-hmm. that that lengthen the lines at food pantries. So Closing the Hunger Gap, as um, Jan mentioned, is a an alliance of organizations that are um, working together. They, are, they come from the hunger relief sector in the U.S., and we're working together to, to, to expand beyond the hunger relief efforts, um, beyond food distribution, towards strategies that promote social justice and really address the root causes of hunger. And so this is, this is about building really a national alliance in order to initiate a, a change within some of the institutions from the inside out, right? Jan Poppendick, who is a Why Hunger board member, author, scholar, food justice advocate. Also, Allison Cohen, who is Senior Director of Programs for Why Hunger, our guests on our program. Thank you both very much. Thank a, you, Bob. Yes, thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure to be here. Wonderful discussion. Certainly the best with the efforts of uh, Why Hunger and Hungerthon. You can go to hungerthon.org if you want to make a donation. Go to Why Hunger. That's all this one word, .org. Find out more about the organization, too. Thank you, and the best of the holiday season to both. Thank you. Thank Same you. to you. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. And after our 9 o'clock update, football Sunday time, perfect on a holiday weekend, Malusis and Deal. And speaking of football, well, I think you know what program is up next. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.